You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Everybody, Minasan Konnichiwa. Welcome to Avakabu Cafe. I am your host, Jason Almy, and I want to welcome you all to today's episode in which we are going to discuss television episode 39 entitled Hypnotizing Madoka Kyosuke's Risky New Year. This episode originally aired January the 4th of 1988. It was directed by Yokoyama Hiroyuki. Yokoyama is notable for directing my least favorite episode in the entire series. That is episode 31, the episode where, for some reason, Kasuga believes that Ayukawa and Yusaku are actually going to go commit suicide together. They're going to go jump over the, the falls. Probably my least favorite episode. Maybe that episode and the Jingro needs to get laid episode might duke it out to see which one is really at the top of my least favorite or the bottom. Maybe I should say the bottom but that is the only other episode of the, the Orange Road TV and OVA series that is directed by Yokoyama Hiroyuki. Otherwise, it's just this in episode 31. And luckily, this is a much, much better episode. So at least Yokoyama goes out on a high note here. Of course, this episode was written by Terada Kenji, none other than Terada Kenji, who has now written 19 episodes, including this one. Most recently, we talked about Terare Kenji's writing for OVA number one, White Lovers. That was last week. And I think with a lot of the sexy stuff and Kasuga having sexualized fantasies in this episode quite frequently, this is some Terare Kenji stuff. I mean, this is going to be very consistent with the fantasies that he was having last week in White Lovers. The episode starts out with a reference to Hatsuyume, which is the first dream of the new year in Japanese culture. It's culturally very significant, but you have Wikipedia, so I'm not going to discuss this at length. I trust that if you're interested in Hatsuyume, then me just saying the word will be enough for you to go dig into the topic more and learn about that first dream of the new year, which is supposed to set the tone for the year. So the idea is that 
the tone for Kosiga's year is going to be set here. This is going to set up what we can expect from the remainder of the episodes, perhaps. The calendar is depicted in this episode. We do get to see Kosiga's calendar hanging on his wall. The year is not depicted on the calendar, but January the 1st is shown to be a Friday, which was true for 1988. So the calendar hanging on Kosiga's wall, despite not saying 1988, is consistent with that being the year. Now, Kosiga wakes up lamenting that he missed his Hatsuyume, but he wakes up to something that might be even better, which is Ayukawa cooking a meal for him. Now, he doesn't seem to know that she was there. Her presence in his home was some kind of surprise to him. He just walks out to the kitchen, and there she is. And also, who in the hell wears a Playboy bunny outfit to cook? This ought to be the first sign that whatever we're witnessing here is not the real life. It's obvious shonen stuff. It's like a male fantasy on steroids. It's young male fantasy shit, and that's exactly what we're we're witnessing here. Yokoyama simulates Kasuga's gaze with a series of close-up shots of Ayukawa's posterior, her crotch area, her breasts, before scanning up the front side of her from uh, from her feet all the way up to the ridiculous bunny ears that she is wearing. Those things are going to smell like curry. I don't know if you guys have ever stood over a hot stove and made curry before or or katsu, especially Jesus. If you're frying katsu, you're going to smell like that. You're going to have to take those bunny ears to a dry cleaner to get that smell out, and you're going to have to hand those bunny ears in that Playboy bunny outfit to the lady at the dry cleaning place, and she's going to look at you and judge you. It is fun here to hear Ayukawa calling Kasuga darling for once. It's not something that she ever says to him, really. There's one other episode where she's kind of mocking him a little bit and pretending to be uh, Shikaru, so she calls him darling in that episode. But it's very rare that we get to hear Hiromi uh, Tsuru, the uh, the seiyu or voice actor for Ayukawa, refer to Kasuga as darling. So it's kind of nice there. It's kind of fun. But it was all a dream. So it really was just some male fantasy shit, like I was just saying a second ago. But any dream of Kasuga's, especially if the filmmakers took time to write it into the script, record the dialogue, and animate it, could potentially be important as a foreboding dream. And I think what we're going to see is that this is not a true foreboding dream, but it certainly does foretell a lot of the content could function as a foreboding dream. Kurumi remarks at how easily she's able to hypnotize Kasuga. Of course, he's so susceptible to hypnosis because he's a total dope. It's meant for humor at his expense. Kurumi is abusing Kasuga after hypnotizing him, making him demean himself by behaving like a dog, barking and panting and running around her on all fours. So it's meant to make the audience laugh. This is a source of comedy for the episode. But it also helps to introduce the element of hypnosis. Of course, we saw hypnosis in an earlier episode. That was the pervert with a camera episode where Kyosuke is hypnotized and he is obeying every order given to him. And so we're already aware of hypnosis as a narrative device used in in orange road 
Uh, but this shows how Kurumi does it, right? We don't see Kurumi hypnotize Kasuga in that earlier episode. But here we see that she makes a quick motion with her hand, places her finger right where his third eye would be, that pituitary, kind of between the eyebrows. And boom, she's got him. He's hypnotized. And now they're on their way back to Oji-san and Obasan's after being there last week. Doesn't make a ton of sense, but it's really just a necessary setup for Kasuga rolling solo on New Year's Eve. They just have to go somewhere. The twins and and Kasuga Takashi just have to leave the house so they can get out of Kasuga's hair and he can be unimpeded on New Year's Eve. And I got to say, the Kasuga family is fairly open about their hypnosis thing. They don't even try to keep the hypnosis thing a secret like they do with the rest of the ESP. It seems obvious to me that Kurumi is so good at hypnosis because she is an Asper, but it seems like others, Ayukawa, Shikaru, they don't perceive the hypnosis skill as being ESP related. And I guess that's because other people can hypnotize folks and hypnosis is kind of a thing more so than telekinesis or teleportation is. So, it's normal for Kasuga to be open with Shikaru and Master and Ayukawa about Kurumi hypnotizing him, but he would never tell any of these people that Kurumi levitated him or or that she teleported the sofa on top of him or something like that. So I thought it was kind of weird that they're super open about the hypnosis thing, but they're really, really closed off about the ESP thing. We don't want anyone to know we have ESP, but let's go ahead and tell everybody how good we are at hypnotizing others. And if they ask us why we're so good at hypnotizing others, I'm sure they won't even ask that question, right? Let's not worry about that. In this episode, we get a rare small peek into Master's brain with a brief flashback of an earlier conversation that he had with Ayukawa. It's a conversation that no one else was present for, so we must be viewing Master's flashback here. We get a little bit of that soft focus, especially around the edges that kind of tell us we're, we're looking inside of someone's brain as Master has this flashback. And in his recollection, Ayukawa strongly implies that she wants to spend the holiday with Kasuga. She's, of course, supposed to be flying to the U.S. to spend some holiday time with her family, but... Her words to Master indicate that she wants to spend the holiday with the one person who means the most to her. And at this point in the series, you can really tell that Ayukawa is wanting to do all of that girlfriend-boyfriend shit with Kasuga. She wants to go visit the shrines together on New Year's. She wants to do all that couple stuff. And the final shot of the flashback is one of Ayukawa we get a little pan up. She sets a glass down at Abakabu as she's doing her work. And we get a pan up from her hand in the glass up to her face. And we see her looking pensive and, and even somewhat melancholy before we wordlessly cut away from her. And I thought that was a nice touch in that flashback was to linger on her a little bit with the camera, effective use of editing. And it sets up what she's thinking in a subtle way without really spelling it out. But she's got a decision to make. Does she go to the United States and spend time with her parents for the holiday, or does she stick around and try to spend some time with Kasuga? 
her wanting to do that couple shit but not being able to really seems to be the source of much of her melancholy at this point in the series. When we see Ayukua looking pensive like this, it's because she wants to be with Kasuga. She knows she wants to be with Kasuga, but there's something preventing that. She's not able to do that boyfriend-girlfriend shit with him. That might even be made worse by her knowledge that Kasuga reciprocates her feelings. I think that's also very obvious to her at this point that Kasuga likes her as well. I mean, she even says so in the movie, in Anohi, and that's not something that I believe that they retconned. Ayukua tells Kasuga in the movie that she knew that he liked her, and she felt secure in that. And so I think she feels secure about Kasuga's feelings, but the idea that he likes her and she likes him and, and she wants to spend this day together, but she can't for social reasons, might exacerbate the disappointment she feels that she can't spend the day with with Kasuga. And Master's flashback only functions to inform the audience of what's going on with Ayukua near the beginning of this episode because there's no indication that Master relates his flashback to any of the other characters like Shikaru or Kasuga. So that flashback was just for us. It was just for our information. And Kasuga is similarly bummed to learn that Ayukawa is headed overseas for the break. He hates the idea of her leaving. He hates the idea of her leaving Japan. He would hate for it to become permanent. Like she gets over there and she just decides, hey, America's pretty cool. They they got this uh, Sonic burger and uh, Wendy's is pretty nice and no school on Saturdays, hell yeah. And then maybe she just decides to stay. So I think there's a little bit of insecurity with Kasuga there when, when it comes to Ayukawa leaving the country even for a temporary period. And I think he wants to spend New Year's with her as well. I mean, he's really bummed that she's not going to be around because he wants to do the coupley shit as well, up to and including the sex. And we're going to see that as part of the theme of today's episode. Now, why Kasuga just opens the door and lets himself into the Ayukua household is beyond me. It's not like he hasn't been slapped enough times by Ayukua. Like, that's a perfect setup for him to walk in, and she's like in a towel, and he witnesses her wrapping the towel around herself, and he gets like a full view of her breasts or something, and then she's slapping the taste out of his mouth. I don't understand. You know, ring a few times, look in a window, maybe knock on the window, maybe go try a, a, a payphone and try to call but it, it seems dangerous to just walk in. But it's a good thing he did because he finds Ayukua there passed out on the floor. And he reacts immediately. I think it's a good indication of his feelings that his urgency is so high. He goes in to rescue her as quickly as he can. Kasuga deftly passes a mop bucket and he even looks down at it. He gives it a wary look down at it as if he knows it was placed there to trip him up. But he's too busy trying to save Ayukua to engage in any humorous pratfalls at the moment. It's almost meta in a sense. It, it's as if he seems to know that he would otherwise be stepping in that thing and falling down the stairs or something, and it lands on his head, and he's soaking wet. And really, the bucket can only have been placed there as an obstacle for Kasuga. Ayukua's house is all carpet. There's no reason for you to have a mop bucket full of water on a staircase that's covered in carpet. It takes a special kind of idiot to mop carpet. 
I've tried. Presumably here, Kasuga is calling the Japanese equivalent of 911, but that's a lot of dial tones. Like, ain't y'all motherfuckers gonna pick up? This is emergency services. Y'all need to answer. This girl passed out and we got no idea why. Could be a brain tumor. Let's rush her to the hospital and get a CAT scan. Before calling, Kasuga stops the background music, which turned out to be playing on Aikua's boombox. It's a clever use of making this background music diegetic. It's actually occurring within the house. Kasuga can hear the music and he wants to make this phone call, so he shuts the boombox off. And the phone keeps ringing and ringing. During that time, there's this long, otherwise silent series of shots back and forth between Kasuga's face in tight on his expression and various tight shots of Ayukawa's legs and chest. And the idea is to accentuate with this montage her relative vulnerability here. She's passed out. We don't know why. We don't know what's going on. But Kasuga is taking note of her physical form. It might be because he had such a provocative dream about her earlier and now he's noticing these parts of her body but it's a great use of the kuleshov effect here it clearly tells the audience that kasuga is gazing at these parts of ayuko's body without having to spell it out for us it just creates it via this film language this semantics the semiotics of this back and forth cutting I can practically see the angel and the devil on Kasuga's shoulders, and the devil sure looks a lot like Bill Cosby. Kasuga eventually decides to do the sort of right thing, and he covers Ayuko up with a fur coat from her closet when he sees her shiver. It's kind of weird. I mean, she's on a bed. There's a blanket on the bed. You could probably cover her up with the blanket on the bed, but uh, the fur coat works too, I guess. Now, Ayukawa seems impressed with Kasuga when she comes around for not sexually assaulting her while she was passed out. And I got to say, that's a pretty low bar that she has set for Kasuga here. And we're never told what her medical issue was, just that she got a little dizzy. And it made me wonder, like, is she being cagey because she faked this illness to get out of traveling? She certainly wasn't bluffing about the travel because we're shown a close-up shot of her passport and the plane ticket to America when Kasuga notices them on her desk. Maybe it was a low blood sugar thing that Ayuko was experiencing. She was fasting, hadn't eaten something. Regardless, Ayuko must have woken up feeling much better because she's being super playful here. This is possibly the most playful we've seen her. We've seen her do some things like when she bit the apple in episode 19, she bites right where Kasuga has bit. So she's not avoiding making this indirect contact with his lips, and she's kind of making this eye contact with him as she does it. So she's been playful with Kasuga like this in the past. It's not completely out of character, but she's usually so stoic, especially in social environments like school or abakabu. She's usually so standoffish, even with people like Kasuga there, that to see her like run over to him and basically embrace him in a very romantic kind of sexual way. And she wraps her arms around him, around his midsection and around his uh, shoulder there, interlock her fingers across his chest, and her face is right up behind his neck, almost like he could feel her breath on, on his neck, and it just seems like the proximity here. And it's very forward of her 
for this series, for her character. She teases Casca a little bit about trespassing. And that's sort of the context for her, like running up and grabbing a hold as if she's arresting him. She's detaining him for the police or something like that. But she's got a smile on her face. She's enjoying him being there. It's obvious that's what she wanted. And Shikaru seems to be covering for Ayuko at Abakabu, and presumably it would be due to the latter's travel plans. And when Shikaru tells Master that Ayukawa isn't traveling, Master seems very pensive. Master seems to know that something's up. He doesn't say it, but we get a tight shot of his face, and you can tell that maybe there's something that he wants to say or he's thinking something, but he winds up keeping it to himself. And perhaps he realizes that means Ayukawa will be spending New Year's Eve with Kasuga, in which case he's feeling a little bit bad because he knows that that could potentially be bad news for Shikaru if Ayukawa and Kasuga are hooking up. Shikaru knew that Ayukawa decided not to go to America before cutting back to Kasuga remembering that she was supposed to be going. So Shikaru already knew that, that Ayukawa had canceled the trip, whimsically canceled the trip. So it sounds like maybe Ayukawa had decided not to go to America for a visit before Kasuga even showed up at her place. Uma and Ushiko have a fairly tame, fairly forgettable, somewhat disappointing cameo in this episode. They're seen just after the eye catch. They're visiting a New Year's festival stalls to buy some stuff, including Ushiko stuffing a shimikazari into Uma's mouth because his hands are full. He's carrying these bags. So she just stuffs that in there and he carries it with his teeth. So this is kind of like a cutaway to Ushiko and Umao. And it's not quite as fun, in my opinion at least, as working them into the action somehow. I always like their appearances when Yusaku is getting ready to pummel Kasuga and this giant Christmas tree falls on him and takes him out. And then Ushiko and Umao like leap out of the, the tree and profess their love to each other. And and meanwhile, Yusaku is just crushed underneath this this tree that that Uma and Ushiko were building some kind of love nest in. And and uh, so I always appreciate their appearances when they're really absurd and over the top because that's kind of orange road to me. This is sort of not befitting of the wild and crazy Uma and Ushiko that make love inside a giant Christmas tree before using it to crush Yusaku. And that's that's the kind of shit I like. I'm, I'm here for that. In this episode, I'll give Kasuga... A lot of credit for initially assuming that Ayukawa is only pretending to be hypnotized. That's correct. He's right at first, but she continues long enough. She eventually convinces him that that she's hypnotized. He's not that confident in his hypnosis abilities, but she convinces him. His initial experimentation with Ayukawa's obedience kind of reminds me of coming to America when Prince Akim makes his fiance hop on one leg and bark like a dog just to test what she's really willing to go through, the humiliation that she's willing to endure simply because he orders it. And and that's what eventually convinces Prince Akeem that he needs to get out of that situation and find a, a different fiance. And in this episode, Ayukwa's obedience, she proves to Kasuga that that she's hypnotized even though she isn't she she eventually convinces him um coming to america was released later in 1988 it was uh june i believe of 88 so it was after orange road finished its television series run so this cannot possibly be a reference to 
coming to America, unfortunately, but it's just a coincidence and something that reminded me of, of that scene in coming to America. Now, unlike Akeem in coming to America, Kasuga actually relishes the possibilities that are now open to him. A obedient, subservient Ayukua. That's just what he wanted for his new year. I do ask myself why he got her to clean his ears. That shit is gross. That is a serious lady boner killer. I cannot imagine cleaning someone's ears and then subsequently wanting to have any type of romantic or sexual interaction with that person. After I have dug gunk out of your ear, we are not doing it. It's not in the cards for me at that point. We see another one of Costco's fantasies here is he's putting his hands on the delicate parts of a hypnotized Ayukawa. The fantasy, of course, is rendered the same way as the rest of the diegesis so that we, we don't initially, as the audience, know that it's a fantasy. It's supposed to be a gotcha, a fake out. We're supposed to think, wow, is Costco really touching Ayukawa's breast? Before we come out of it and realize that it's one of Costco's fantasies, at least also to Costco's credit, at least he's only rapey in his fantasies. Because honestly, what teenage boy isn't going to at least think about touching a little booby when he accidentally hypnotizes a girl he likes? Also, to his credit, Ayukua seems very willing to undress and bathe him. And as soon as he sees her undressing, Kasuga stops her and says he's kidding. He's not going to let her go through with the act. This seems like the evidence that Kasuga needed to convince him that Ayukua is not faking her hypnosis. Cleaning his ears, sure. You'll do that as a gag, but unzipping your top and getting ready to get naked so that you can bathe me, you must be hypnotized in this case. And of course, he's titillated by the prospect of sexual activity with Ayukawa, but he also doesn't want to take advantage of her in a state of hypnosis. And that's why he stops her when she goes to unzip her dress and start to get naked for the bath time. He's tempted to do sexy stuff with a hypnotized Ayukua. We've seen this already via his fantasies. But Kasuga does seem to place a high value on obtaining her conscious consent. That's a good thing, of course. While Kasuga is undeniably attracted to Ayukua, anybody watching the show knows that at this point, and he often experiences these sexualized fantasies about her. He's also shown consistently that he views her as more than a sex object. She means more to him than his own sexual gratification. He certainly wants to engage with her sexually, but it's clear that he's interested in more than just the sex. And as such, he wants to be with Ayukua in a conscious and fully present state. He doesn't want to do anything sexual with her that she might not even remember because she's hypnotized. So, in the sense that he was tempted, but he resists the temptation and he uh, decides not to pursue any sexual activity with her, despite having an opportunity to do so, I think is both realistic. Of course, he's a teenage boy. He's going to be tempted, but then it, it also uh, bodes well for his moral fiber. It allows us as the audience to accept him as the hero of the story a lot better than if he were to go through with some sexual activity with 
a girl he hypnotized. So instead, they wind up heading to the New Year's festival we saw earlier. At the festival, Kasuga remarks in his voiceover that Ayukawa seems charming to him beyond words in her current state. What he's really saying is that Kasuga acknowledges a preference for an obedient and subservient Ayukawa, which is kind of the opposite of Ayukawa's typical personality. She typically gets a lot of praise for being her own person. She's not kissing anyone's ass, and she's not doing things to impress men. And I think one of the strongest aspects of her character is, is just that. And and here, it's kind of stripped away via the, the hypnosis facade. And Kasuga likes it. Might be a little misogynistic of Kasuga. We see Komatsu and Hata. They make an appearance at the festival. They are literally hollering at girls, not even in a figurative way, like, let me holler at you. It's like they're yelling at girls as the girls walk by. It's like they're getting more pathetic as the show continues. They have to yell because these women won't get near them. Now, Hata has a clever line here that actually made me laugh out loud. He says, after the clang, let's cling, referring to the clanging of the bell at the shrine. And then after, after ringing the bell, let's get it on. But honestly, the line should have been translated as, after the clang, let's bang. Because it rhymes and it implies the exact same thing. And also, what woman could say no to that offer? Take me back to your mom's place, Hatta. Now, the teachers from episode two, all the way back from episode two, they make a reappearance in this episode nearly 38 episodes later. These are the same teachers who had warned Kasuga not to associate with Ayukua and Shikaru because they're delinquents and they're bad and, and hanging out with them must mean you're bad too and you're all going to go to hell when you die. Ayukua seemed to be riding Kasuga piggyback as they first flee the teachers. They run across the screen from uh, left to right, which must be a reflection of her choice of footwear as she is normally a much better athlete than Kasuga. There's no way that Kasuga would be doing the running for both of them unless she was in some heels or something like that. But I wonder why the teachers chase them in the first place. Like, what are the teachers doing? They must be chaperones or something. They've got these little armbands on. But what is their general objection to seeing two students out walking together on New Year's? I mean, yeah, they were a little close. Ayukua sort of had her her arms intertwined with Kasuga's. She was a little close to him. But, like, how can you object to physical contact between students when they're not even on campus? I don't I didn't understand that. I, and I think it's probably a, a cultural reflection that maybe the teachers have a little bit more sway over students, even outside of the school campus, and that they generally want to prevent people from associating with Ayuko because she's such a uh, evil and dangerous delinquent. And both times Kasuga is caught with Ayukua, he attempts to create this physical distance between her. He kind of Attempts to like shake her off a little bit. It's kind of like, get off me. But then both times she like grabs back onto him. She clings to him a little bit and she doesn't want to be shook off of Kasuga. It's kind of cute. The animation's kind of cute for her, her movements as she, he sort of tries to shake her off. I thought it was kind of funny too. He's like, oh, get off me. You know, like they're looking. And um, today, oh, Ayukawa straight up traumatizes Yusaku, that poor man. He was upset to see Ayukua and Kasuga canoodling, which is a great word, by the way, but absolutely should not be overused 
You cannot overuse canoodling one time per conversation or per podcast episode. Otherwise, you're overusing it. But but Yusaku's ready to fight Kasuga over this because he's mad that Kasuga's like got his hooks into Ayukua as well. But then when Ayukua acted as if she didn't know who he was, that's what really crushed Yusaku because they grew up together so much so that he runs off in tears. And she actually crushed Yusaku's willingness to do violence on Kasuga. Yusaku's always wanting to do violence on Kasuga, and she just put the kibosh on that. And it's clear evidence, and, and, and this time it really is intended as clear evidence of Yusaku's genuine emotional sensitivity. Not something that's played up in, in the initial episodes of the show, but it is something that gets a little bit more attention in the back half. And I joke a lot about Yusaku being sexually attracted to Kasuga, but here, this really is, and some future episodes are going to show us a younger Yusaku, and it really is meant to show us that he is a sensitive soul. He's not like this macho dude. That machismo and aggression is clearly a front to cover his sensitive nature rather than to own his abundance of feelings. He's normally wanting to cover up this sensitivity with his karate persona, his tough guy persona. And Kasuka's empathetic nature is also on display here. He seems genuinely concerned over Yusaku when the latter runs off, part of which might be because he knows Yusaku is likely going to tell Shikaru, but it's not just that. Kasuka seems legitimately concerned because he just witnessed Yusaku's feelings get murdered. And with this turn of events, there's a good bit of focus placed on Shikaru's current place in the love triangle. Shikaru thinks that Kasuga is in for a surprise with some New Year's shrine visits. Yusaku is further saddened to realize that it's really Shikaru who's in for the surprise. Shikaru gets dressed up all cutely in this very traditional uh, Japanese kimono, and she obviously dressed up to impress Kasuka, but but he's out there with Ayukawa. He's not even thinking about her. There's a soft focus effect used in, in the cutaway to Yusaku's flashback of Kasuga's dumb face from a few minutes earlier, and it shows us that Yusaku can't help but to think fondly and warmly of Kasuga. And I must say that doing karate in an alley by yourself on New Year's Eve is the most Yusaku thing that Yusaku could do. And he's so pissed at Kasuga for being with Ayukua because Kasuga is out gallivanting around town, canoodling, oops, I already said that, with yet another person that's not him. And this episode features an abundance of sexual imagery. Kasuga is constantly fantasizing about Ayukua in various states of undress in this episode. He fantasizes again about taking a bath with her and her taking off a negligee to get nude for the bathtub. And these images of his fantasies are displayed, of course, for the audience. They're meant to entice the audience as well. But to keep things fair, we do get to see Kasuga's ass as he hops around nude trying to get his clothes back on because Shikaru just showed up at Ayukua's place. And as with a few previous episodes, the consequences of Shikaru catching Kasuga compromised with Ayukua is teased via this imaginary sequence where Kasuga imagines Shikaru finding him nude in Ayukua's bath, and it's stylistically 
identical to the rest of the episode except for an echo effect to the dialogue. There's no abstract background with funky colors or soft focus. The mise-en-scene of this imaginary moment is specifically constructed to be similar to the rest of the episode in order to fake us out, just as with uh, Casca's booby-grabbing fantasy from earlier in the episode. It's meant to look like the rest of the episode so that we'll go into the fantasy thinking, maybe this is really happening. It's a fake-out for us. But at this point in the series, it's really hard for me not to feel bad for Shikaru because she doesn't seem to have any idea, especially in this episode. Even as she's watching Kasuga and Ayukawa behaving like lovebirds, this episode ends with Kasuga realizing that Ayukawa had been playing the whole time. She was never hypnotized. He's chasing after her. They're laughing. They're happy. They're totally blissful. Even as Shikaru struggles to keep up with them, she's asking them both, what's going on? What are they doing? At this point in the series, Kasuga and Ayukawa both seem to be very aware of their true feelings, and they're not being very secretive about it either. So they either think Shikaru is too stupid to realize, or they can't help themselves. And this is what seems to be the case to me, at least. They seem to be getting more and more swept up in their own romance and less and less able to keep that shit under wraps. And here in this episode, at least, Shikaru really doesn't seem like she knows what's up. And so I think the movie Anohi retcons this a little bit. There are only a few times in the TV series where it seems like she's wise to what Kasuga and Ayukawa feel for each other. There's a bit of fourth wall breakage here with the characters all addressing the audience directly, facing the camera, wishing us all a happy new year. The transition is interesting. Kazuya with Jingaro pulls the previous image off of the screen like they're opening a curtain, like that image was printed on a curtain and they're pulling it aside to reveal what's behind the curtain. So it it takes the image that we were seeing and makes it like a physical thing within the diegetic world that characters could grab a hold of and move aside. But then also all of the characters stay in character as they're wishing us a happy new year. Shikaru is glomming onto Kasuga and Ayuko is watching, looking miffled and Yusaku's pissed at Kasuga over Shikaru being affectionate to him and uh, Kurumi is definitely not sitting like a lady. She's legs akimbo. And they all seem to be in character as they're wishing us a happy new year, which is interesting because you know this is animation. This is not an outtake. These are not live action actors where there would be these outtakes or the actors could directly address the audience and thank them for watching. Um, this has to be animated. So it has to be constructed. It seems to acknowledge that they're playing roles in a story that we're witnessing over the course of this television series. And there are uh, other examples of fourth wall breakages. I mentioned one early in the series, I believe episode three, where Manami winks at the camera and, and it is as if she knows something's up. Early in this episode, Casca looked down at that mop bucket filled with water as if he knew somebody drew that there for me to trip on, but I'm not falling for it this time. And he runs right past it. I mean, they, they animated his head turning so he could look down at this mop bucket and think, not today, mop bucket, and keep running upstairs to save Ayukawa. And Casca routinely breaks the fourth wall in the episode previews uh, at the very end of each episode. And Costco will tell the audience that he's got a lot of lines in the next episode or that he's not appearing much. Like uh, 
the preview for episode 37, Kasuga says, oh, I'm not going to be in this one much. And so we do get a little bit of that. In the previews, it's not that big of a deal, but it's still kind of meta. And uh, so this episode is interesting for including that. And I suppose that's also kind of a cultural thing too. I don't know how many American television shows stop a moment early so that all the characters, while still in character, can thank us for watching. But kind of a cool uh, stylistic choice for the episode, I think. You know what else I think would be cool? I think it'd be pretty darn cool if you headed over to patreon.com slash teamalmy and became a patron of Team Almy Studios, the production company that brings you this fine podcast amongst a few others. I will send you merch, of course. Everyone gets something from me for joining. You'll also have access to a bunch of bonus content with more on the way. I'm constantly thinking about you. I'm constantly appreciating you for being a patron. Thank you all uh, for being patrons, and I want to encourage you guys to join if you haven't already. I also want to encourage you to please check out my other podcast. It is called Creatures of the Night. It's a fun, funky podcast where talking about the paranormal while doing LSD on beaches. We're not uh, we're not like uh, January 6th QAnon types. You don't have to worry about it. It's all in good fun. You need podcasts to listen to, and, and uh, that's a good podcast for you to check out. Uh, check out innercirclepn.com for other podcasts that aren't made by me but are made by the, the fine folks of the Inner Circle Podcast Network, of which... This show is a proud member. You'll find other great podcasts on innercirclepn.com. I promise you'll find something that you like to get you through your week. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I appreciate you very much. And I want to leave you with some lovely Orange Road remix. Thanks again. And I will talk to you guys next week. Sayonara, bitches. Thank you.